Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Today, just to like tell you all what's going on <laughs> so that we get it out of the way all at once. Uh, if you didn't hear back at the beginning of May, I uh, broke my clavicle pretty badly uh, playing ultimate frisbee um, and had to have surgery, which I had surgery on May 18th and have been recovering since then. It's going very, very well. I'm out of my sling, which is good. I still have some uh, restrictions as to how I'm allowed to move my left arm, uh, but I got this sweet piece of metal in there now that like kind of makes me feel like I'm part robot, you know, like I got... Uh, it's kind of like this cool little thing, and you can see the screws down in there. Oh, it, yeah, there it is. Oliver got the picture. I'm actually, that, that thing has to come out, so we got to do surgery again in six to 12 months. I'm hoping they'll let me keep it, because I think that's really cool. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm recovering well, I suppose. I found out just yesterday that I can pretty comfortably play piano, which is a huge help for my heart. I'm not really able to play guitar yet, but we're getting there. Every day gets better and better. So I appreciate your prayers, and I would appreciate your continued prayers. Um, today, we've been in Matthew for a long time. Today, we're going to come to an ending of sorts. We're not ending Matthew for sure, but we're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's pray, and then we're going to finish out uh, Matthew chapter 7. Lord Jesus, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord, and I would also just ask that you would do what we sang together this morning, Lord. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you and be changed, and we ask it in Jesus' mighty name, amen. So as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's kind of difficult to overestimate the significance of this message that Jesus has been preaching. Um, you have to remember that the people of Israel historically were used to hearing from God through prophets and visions and even angelic visitations, but nothing like that had happened in like 430 years. And so from their perspective, we, we can kind of take it for granted because we've heard the Sermon on the Mount lots of times, but from their perspective, this was a prophet of God coming to them, because that's how many of them saw Jesus, coming to them and communicating what God wanted them to hear for the first time in any of their lives and in many generations before that. And the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus gives them is not just principles for success measured by worldly standards. It's not just ways of positive thinking and good living. It is instruction for the Christian community and for life within the kingdom of God as we in that community enjoy this kind of uh, passing through time. You know, we are pilgrims in this place. And the, the Sermon on the Mount gives us instruction on how we should live while we're here. And we're going to finish out the Sermon on the Mount with the last little chunk that Jesus says, and then Matthew puts a little tag on the end. So this is Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. It says this, Therefore, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man 
who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And that's the end of what Jesus has to say. And then Matthew puts this little tag on. He says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, I want to mention a little note about the scripture I just read. I started with the word, therefore. If you are using an ESV Bible, which I think lots of you do, that word isn't there. I stuck that in. Now, I didn't just do that willy-nilly. I had reasons. One is, if you look in just about every other uh, translation of the Bible that you would think of, the word therefore is there. So I didn't just like plug it in out of of nowhere. It, It has a place. It also, I think, draws our attention really well. We've said this before in other messages. The word therefore requires us to look back at what we just read, what was just said, or what just happened. We have to look at the context. Every time we see a therefore, we have to see what it's there for. And so that's what we're going to do today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to examine this passage in groups of two. It's obviously the two foundations, the one on the rock and the one on the sand. We're going to look at it through two different scriptural contexts in Matthew. We're going to look at it in two different ways of considering who Jesus is, and that will result in two different, but I think both valid, interpretations of this passage. Now, what do I mean when I say two different ways of considering who Jesus is? Well, if we ask ourselves the question, who is Jesus, the easy answer is he's the Son of God and the Savior of the world. But if we look in Scripture for that answer, we will find dozens, if not hundreds, of answers to that question. For example, Jesus is the Lion of Judah, the Messiah, the Great I Am, the Snake Crusher, spoken of in Genesis 3, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Bread of Life, the Redeemer, the Only Begotten begotten Son of the Father, the Holy One of Israel, the High Priest, the Son of Man, the True Vine, It goes on and on and on. So what are we talking about? Which two ways of looking at who Jesus is are we going to examine today? Well, the two ways we're going to look at are Jesus as fully God and Jesus as fully man. Now, I want to say right away that I'm going to look at those two things separately, but that's just for the sake of interpreting this passage. He was both of those things simultaneously. He's not one or the other. He was both of those things simultaneously, fully God and fully man. So we have two major points today. The first one is the fully God perspective, or perhaps the fully God interpretation. Jesus, as fully God, is considering salvation when he describes the foundations. So when he's talking about the foundation built on the rock and the one built on the sand, he's addressing the issue of foundation. Let me explain. Last week, Joe taught a passage just before this one, Matthew 7, and he included in that verses 21 and 23, and it's kind of a scary passage. It says this. It can be a scary passage. 
It says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what we learned was that there is such a thing as a false profession of faith. There's such a thing as putting on like an exterior religious outside without there being an actual miraculous change inside in our hearts. And tragically, that results in those who will be turned away on the day of judgment. In reality, what we need to not be turned away is a personal relationship based in faith in Jesus Christ. We need a personal relationship with Jesus. Works, then, are the necessary fruit of that salvation that's grounded in faith, but works are not the necessary cause of salvation. Does that make sense? Being saved means that we have brand new life in Christ. Our old life is dead. We are a completely new person. This is Christianity 101, right? And the result of being saved is that there is a change on our outside. There's a, there's a, a, a change that's supernatural that what people see becomes different because there will be a fruit that we have when we're saved in our hearts. There's this manifestation of fruit that comes from God's Spirit being inside of us. But what we learned last week in this, looking at this passage is that it's possible to kind of put on these exterior acts without there actually being an interior change. Now, as we look at this fully God perspective, the context, what the therefore is pointing to, is that immediate concern. It's addressing that verse that we looked at last week. In other words, Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, therefore, because of that, this is what I have to say. And Joe said last week that that issue, that, that thing we just talked about in verses 21 to 23, it can be scary for some of us. Especially, I think he, he put it in terms of those who have a very sensitive conscience. Because you can find yourself asking well, what if that's me? What if I'm the one who's just putting on like exterior works? Like I don't want to find myself in a situation where I'm meeting the Lord and he's saying, I never knew you. Like, what if that's me? And that can be a little scary. That can be a difficult question to ask. It's actually not a horrible question to ask, even though it can be a little scary. Peter, the apostle Peter, reminds us in 1 Peter 1.10 that we should be diligent to confirm our calling and election. We should be looking at ourselves, reflecting, and, and kind of like checking in on our faith, like examining our faith in Christ. But what we don't want to do is live in this place of fear because we're constantly afraid that the Lord's going to reject us. So how can we dispel that fear? How can we be certain that on the day of judgment we won't be rejected. Well, 
strangely enough, the answer comes from the same verse that kind of like maybe sowed the seed of concern. Let's go back and look again at verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's saying that's who will not be rejected, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, the obvious question then is, what is the will of the Father, right? Like we want to know that if we want to be doing it. And to get a really clear answer of that, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles or on your Bible app over to John 6. We're going to be looking starting around verse 28. And while you're turning there, let me give you a summary of kind of what's happening in John 6. So Jesus has begun his ministry and he's healed people. He's made blind people able to see. He's caused lame people to be able to walk. He's cleansed lepers. And the word is getting out. And people are starting to follow him. And in John 6, he's got this gigantic crowd of people who are following him and wanting to see what he's going to do next. And so then what comes about is the famous story of Jesus feeding more than 5,000 people with just a few small bits of food. He miraculously multiplies this food and everyone sees it. And it's shocking. And then not only that, but also in John 6, Jesus walks on water. And the crazy thing there is not everybody sees that. But if you read the, the chapter, what you find out is the crowd of people kind of catch on that Jesus did something miraculous. They're not really sure what he did, but they know that he didn't get in the boat with the disciples. And then the next day, he's like really far away, like someplace he couldn't have gotten. So they know that something crazy miraculous has happened. And that's why they're following him, that he's so interesting. And so in verse 28, this is what they say. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You see, they're, they're still thinking like, what are the things we got to do? What's the stuff we got to do? What do we have to be doing? Doing, doing, doing. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Now jump ahead to verse 39. There's like this banter that goes back and forth. We're going to revisit that in a little bit between Jesus and the crowd. But in verse 39, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now here's the answer. This is the answer we've been looking for back in Matthew 7, verse 21. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. I love this passage for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I love it and how it fits in this, this kind of point I'm trying to make is that Jesus is like totally in fully God mode right now, okay? Like, think about the things that he just said and he's about to say in the rest of John 6. Here's some of the things he says. He says, I am the bread of life. A little bit later, he says, my flesh is real food and my blood is true drink. And then he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life in you. Those are not things that normal people say, right? Right? 
Like as much as we love and worship Jesus, if we were to walk downtown and find someone on the sidewalk saying stuff like that, we would probably call the police or get help in some way for this person. But here's Jesus saying these things that to their ears would be completely outlandish. But in that space of him being fully God, not speaking like a man would, speaking like God would, he reveals something really important. And the important thing is that the will of the Father is to believe on the Son. That is what we must do to enter the kingdom of heaven. So now let's go back to our actual passage from today. This is Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. And remember, we're addressing issues of salvation here. And he says, therefore. Now remember, therefore tells us to look back. And what we're looking at is this immediate context of this issue of salvation. Who's going to be in the kingdom and who's not? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. What words of his? Well, the words that he's referring to is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Everyone who hears that you must do the will of the Father who is in heaven in order to be in the kingdom and then does them, everyone who does that, what happens? He will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. It did not fall. Think about what that means. It means that if we hear what he's saying, that we are called to do the will of the Father, which is to believe in the Son, and we do believe in the Son, we place our faith and our trust and our hope in Jesus, then we will have a salvation that cannot be shaken. It will not fall. How can we be so sure? How can we come to that conclusion? Well, Jesus not only says it here, but he actually says it back in John 6 again. One of the sections that we skipped over included verse 37. John 6, 37 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. So our salvation, built on the rock-solid foundation of faith in Christ, will never fall. It can't. Now, there's a flip side to that. There's a flip side to that. Because Jesus goes on. It says, and everyone who hears these words of mine, which words? Again, it's the words where Jesus is saying, everyone who does the will of my Father, which is to believe on the Son. But this time, he says, whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now I want you to notice something in there, that the foolish man was still building something. Did you catch that? He's like, he'll be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. He's still building something. He's still trying to construct something with a foundation. He's just going about it wrong. He's doing the works. He's putting on the exterior things. And we don't know 
what the motivation could be. It could be different for different people. It may be to try to be part of a community or to uh, fit in with, with peers or to uh, maybe get the benefits of being a Christian. Whatever. Whatever the motivation is, they're building something, but it's this structure that's all works and that creates a foundation that is sand. And what happens? Well, when the trial comes, when the winds blow, there'll be a fall because a structure of works is never going to last. Okay? The only thing that is rock-solid foundation is trust in Jesus, faith in Christ, and then the works come out of that, not the other way around. Amen? What Jesus is calling us to do in this fully God perspective on salvation is to hear the words, hear His words, and do the will of the Father. To recognize that we were created for God's glory, but that we've fallen. At some point, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're lost. But the solution to that problem is Jesus. And when we trust in Him, we will never be cast out. We will have transformed lives. Now, that's the fully God perspective on the two foundations looking at the issues of salvation. Maybe you don't buy that perspective. Maybe, maybe you buy the concept, the doctrine of salvation through faith and not works, because that's, I think, what most of you would agree to. But maybe you don't buy that that's what Jesus is addressing in this portion of Matthew 7. Well, that's okay. Let's look at it a different way. Here's point two. This is going to be the fully man perspective or the fully man interpretation of the two foundations. In the fully man perspective, Jesus, as fully man, is addressing the Christian walk when describing the foundations. He's addressing the way we walk in this place. Now, if you've been tracking for the past several weeks as we've been going through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, if you've been tracking with what Jesus has been saying, you've heard him present this elevated, kind of, I'm not sure updated is the right word, but a more challenging path for us to walk. He's calling us to something that is more challenging than you find previously in Scripture. It's the way followers of Christ should live in this world while, be, while simultaneously being in the world, but not of the world. That's what Jesus has been doing. And he makes that clear right up front. In Matthew 5, starting in verse 14, he says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When he tells us to let our light shine, he's talking about living in this world. That's, that's who the light should be shining to, the people in this world. Just like at some point, we saw someone, the light of Christ shine through someone else, which is probably why we're all here. And when he says, give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven, it's like a reminder that while our light is shining in this world, this world is not our home, that our home is with our Father in heaven and we're just passing through. The Sermon on the Mount has been kind of a manual of sorts for Christian living that reflects the upside-down nature of Christ's kingdom. Have you heard that term before, that Jesus has an upside-down kingdom? Because He's a king who came to His people and laid down His life to the point of death to rescue us. Kings don't do that in this world. That's why it's often referred to as an upside-down kingdom. And He's, as a result of that, has called us to do all these like upside-down things in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to this. This is what we've heard over the past couple of weeks. We should hold in low regard the things of this world and rather seek first His kingdom and then all the provisional things will be added to us. But what we seek first is His kingdom, not the things of this world. That's backwards from the way people usually do it. And then there's this. We're to look beyond this world where things here can so easily like bog us down and master us and confuse us and distract us. And instead, we're to look to be laying up treasures in heaven. Well, that's backwards from what people do. I mean, you, you live in this world. You know that like the standard operating procedure is to get as much as we can and enjoy it as much as we can. That's like how the world functions. But Jesus says, look beyond this place and store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Here are some other backwards things. We're supposed to disregard the potential praises of men and rather give or in other ways serve the Lord in secret so that the Father who sees in secret will reward us. We're to mean what we say. We don't even need to take an oath because our words should be so true and so trustworthy that we would never have to promise or, or anything like that. We're to have a posture of forgiveness toward others before they've even done anything wrong to us, and especially even when they do. We're to have this posture of forgiveness toward others all the time. All of those things are backwards from the way the world generally operates, and that's what he's calling us to do. So what I'm getting at, the reason I kind of give you that summary of the Sermon on the Mount is because this time in the fully man perspective of the two foundations, I think the therefore is pointing to the entire context of the Sermon on the Mount. The entire thing. It's like Jesus has preached this whole message and he's getting ready to close it and he says, therefore, it's like he's saying, therefore, if you have heard these words of mine, therefore, if you've been paying attention to the sermon I just preached, if you take collectively all the things I just said, and then he goes on from there. Now, I have to add a little side note that is important, but I'm going to admit right up front, it could be confusing. And I struggled with this for a long time yesterday to say it as clearly as I can, and it took me a while. And I kind of feel bad for you because I had lots of time to think about it. You're going to hear it one time. So <laughs> I hope I said it clearly. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, I believe that in this perspective, 
of, of the Christian walk that when he says everyone, he's talking about believers in Christ. Okay, believers, those who've already put their faith in Jesus. Now, why do I come to that conclusion? Here we go. You ready for this? The Sermon on the Mount describes a path to walk, a way to live, good works that we should be doing. We know that we're talking about good works that we should be doing because remember, at the beginning, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we're talking about things we should be doing. But we also know, we established earlier, that good works never save. They don't save us. Only faith in Christ does that. So in this fully man interpretation or perspective, if Jesus is speaking about laying foundations, good foundations or bad foundations, either one, if he's talking about laying foundations with works, he can't be talking about salvation. He has to be talking about those who already have a firm foundation through saving faith in Christ. Does that make sense? Some of you are shaking your head up and down. Let me say it just really quickly one more time. If Jesus is speaking of laying foundations with works, he can't be talking about salvation because salvation never comes through works. He has to be talking and addressing those who already have a firm foundation in Christ through faith. And in that context, he's calling us to bear fruit as evidence in the, of the Spirit within us. He's calling us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, a life of repentance. I want to take a little aside for a moment because I think it helps make this point. I'm, I'm excited you guys have been hearing over the past couple of weeks during announcements that our equipped classes are coming up in July. I'm excited about those classes. We're going to be tackling several difficult topics that are kind of forefront in society. But one of the themes that's going to run through uh, some of those messages comes from a quote by Charles Spurgeon. And it says this, If a crooked stick is before you, you need not explain how crooked it is. Lay a straight one down by the side of it, and the work is well done. Preach the truth, and error will stand abashed in its presence. Now, that's a great quote. What it doesn't mean is that we never address error. We're going to need to address error. Okay, that's an important thing for us to do. But I think in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the reason I love this quote is because I think Jesus is saying kind of the same thing. He's saying, walk this way. Be an example of the truth for those who are not in the truth to be able to see. He's telling us to follow His example. He's saying, trust the Father as Jesus trusted the Father. Do the Father's will as Jesus did the Father's will. Live radically counter-cultural lives like He calls us to do over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. He's telling us to be examples of the truth. And here's why. Because we can speak to error, but what good are our words if our lives don't reflect what we're saying? 
I knew she was going to say that's right. (laughs) What good are our words if our lives don't reflect what we say? It doesn't mean that we don't speak those words. It just means that we have to follow Jesus' call to live the way He's telling us to live before we speak those words. Now, I keep talking about a fully man perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, when we talked about a fully God perspective, we saw Jesus saying like these God things, like things that man don't, won't say, that a man can't say. And when we get to this perspective and we get to this last passage where we're talking about the two foundations, Jesus presents this picture that I think really kind of reminds us of His humanity, okay? We have a Savior who sympathizes with us because he's endured the things that we've endured and way more, right? And, and so he's, I think we can get this view of the humanity of Christ in this passage. And, and let me explain it this way. How many of you have ever seen artistic renditions of Jesus, like paintings of Jesus, right? Lots of you. Probably some good ones, probably not so good ones, right? How many of you have ever seen the one like Jesus in the white robe with a blue sash and like a lamb over his neck and he looks like he just came from the hair salon and his beard is like perfectly groomed? Have you seen this one? Right? Okay, Jesus probably didn't look like that, right? Then on the other side of that, there are, there are works that are considered to be masterpieces. I, I believe it's Da Vinci's Last Supper, right? With the famous one with Jesus and the 12 disciples that cracks me up because they're all sitting on the same side of the table, you know? Um, And then there are various depictions of Jesus returning in power. But I want you to imagine, like, I wish I had an example to put up on the wall. I couldn't find a good one. So you have to use your imagination a little bit. I have one in my mind of Jesus kind of just looking like a regular guy. Not, uh, like, unremarkable. And he's perhaps lean and fit from 20-some years of working as a carpenter. You know, like we think of Jesus the preacher, but he did that in his 30s, and he was a carpenter first, so he would have had a long time of working. And he was probably brown-skinned, not only from his ethnicity, but from working in the sun. Israel's a bright, sunny, hot place, right? So he would have been quite brown, and he was an itinerant preacher at the time when we read about his message, so his various messages, so he was probably a little bit dirty, maybe. I could be wrong about that, but I'm just trying to like imagine this like regular guy, right? And he's got calloused hands from being a builder. He built things. He built stuff. So when he starts talking about building foundations, one on a rock and one on the sand, he's talking to us from a place of experience. Like he actually built stuff with his hands. He had firsthand experience of building. Just like when he's calling us to live in a certain way in the Sermon on the Mount, he had firsthand experience doing that too, right? But he's talking about building stuff and he knew how to build stuff. So he paints this picture that reminds me a lot of something that you would find in Psalms or or Proverbs or one of the wisdom books. And it applies, remember, to those who are saved. He's addressing those who have put their faith in Christ, and it's like a parable for believers. He's saying, here's how you should navigate this world. You're saved. You have this rock-solid foundation of faith in Christ, but you could live this way or you could live this way. 
And depending on which one you choose, there's going to be different result. So he says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Remember, he's talking to believers who's heard all of these things he's covered in the Sermon on the Mount. If you hear them and do them, you'll be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Well, here's the translation. If you are in Christ and you are obedient to follow His way, then you have chosen wisdom. And you are building something that is going to yield treasures in heaven. Trials will come. The house is going to get shaken. The wind is going to blow. Okay? Things are going to flood. He's making that very clear. But the house that you're building will not fall because you will have developed a godly character that withstands pressure and persecution and trial and the unexpected. And then he goes on. And everyone who hears these words of mine, remember he's still talking to believers, who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Fall of it. Here's the translation. If you are in Christ, but you have something in your life that you are not submitting to Christ's will and to Christ's way, the thing that He's calling us to do. Perhaps it's an issue of unforgiveness. Perhaps it's an issue of giving versus greed. Perhaps it's an issue of anger. Perhaps, perhaps it's an issue of adultery, which includes maybe what you access on the internet. If that's you, you're in Christ, but you've chosen a path of foolishness. And your reward, whatever reward you get from those things, it's fleeting. It's passing. And trials will come. The wind is going to blow. The house is going to shake. Things are going to flood. And when that happens, you'll experience a very merciful fall. It's very merciful because it's God's love for you in allowing those things to crumble. It's a merciful fall. Now, the interesting thing, there are lots of interesting things about the Sermon on the Mount, but consider this for a moment. We tend to think of this as, okay, Jesus sat down, preached the sermon, Matthew wrote it down word for word, and it's the Sermon on the Mount. But you can think of the Sermon on the Mount kind of like a, a I almost hate to say this word, but almost like a political stump speech. You know what a stump speech is? It's like the main points and they say it in all the different stops. Like the Sermon on the Mount was kind of like Jesus' main teaching. He probably taught it lots and lots of times. Matthew probably heard it lots of times. And so what we have is kind of like the result of Matthew writing down all of these important things that he heard Jesus preach multiple times. And another person that would have heard Jesus preach this message lots of times is his brother James. Now, James says something amazing in James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. Listen to this and tell me if this doesn't sound like someone who heard the story of the two foundations lots of times. James says, 
but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Do you see the similarity? Whoever hears these words of mine and does them or whoever hears them and doesn't do them. James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So listen, this morning, if you are a hearer but not a doer, if something about what I just said kind of gets you and you're realizing there's some part of your life in which you're a hearer but you're not a doer of the word that we've been called to do by Jesus, then you have a choice. You can, as James says, keep deceiving yourself and you will move toward an inevitable, merciful fall in that area of your life. Or you can repent and be blessed because that is what doers receive. They, they are blessed in their doing. I'm going to have the band come back up as we're finishing out. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount right there, but then Matthew ends, uh, adds this little tag, which honestly, I've read it so many times in my life and never got struck by the importance of it until recently. It says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I've often thought of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I think I stood right here and taught regarding the Sermon on the Mount that it's kind of like this impossible high bar that we could never reach. And therefore, it's kind of like what causes us to see that we need a Savior and draws us towards saving faith in Christ. And that's true in a way. But if we only think of it as that, it's kind of limiting. What it really is, because Jesus taught it with authority, what he's revealing in that is that he believed that it was possible to live this way. He believed that it was possible to live this way. You may be thinking, come on, I like, I screw up things in the Sermon on the Mount like every day. I get it. I do too, right? But you can't like live in that space. Jesus has called us to follow him in this way. And he preached it with authority so we can have confidence that it's possible. Amen? So don't get stuck there. He would not have preached this with authority if we couldn't do it. And we know that we can do it because he says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that, you, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's aim for that level of obedience so that God the Father receives glory. Amen? Let's pray and then we're going to sing. Would you stand, please? Lord Jesus, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful more than anything for your Holy Spirit, that those who have saving faith in Christ have the Holy Spirit of God within them and make all of these things that you are calling us to do possible by your empowering, Lord. So, Father, I ask as we go out of this place this morning that you would help us to renew in our minds 
in our hearts the effort to follow hard after you, Lord, no matter the cost, no matter the difficulty, always looking to you, Father, for God, for God's glory. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.